0: Miss me? All right, let's do this thing. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie and this is episode 345, Building Blocks. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, we're finishing up the Fury of the Northmen series, and you can get instant access to that episode and all the other extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Mike, Jordy, and Megan for signing up already. In the early 11th century, the English were crushed by the Scots. At the battle of Carham, we're told that king malcolm of scotland who was supported by king owain of strathclyde had brought their combined armies to bear against the forces of elderman utred of bernicia in 1018 and there they slaughtered the english but there's a problem with that story according to the chronicle elderman utred was already long dead by 1018 He'd been executed by at least 1016 under the orders of King Canute. So what happened there? Well, in the annals of Ulster, there's a record of a battle between Uhtred and Malcolm in 1005. So perhaps that was the Battle of Carum we're talking about. But the trouble there is that the annals say that Uhtred won that battle, not Malcolm. So what's going on? Well, it is possible that there were actually two battles, one in 1005, which Uhtred won, and another battle, perhaps the Battle of Carum, which Malcolm won and where the English were slaughtered. But even then, the scribes must have gotten something wrong, either the date or the people involved. Because unless English history involves a lot more zombies than we thought, the fact is, it's really unlikely that their army was led by a dead man. Now, one possibility is that the scribes mistook Uhtred for his brother, Adewulf. And the records from Durham do indicate that Aidulf took over the Eldermancy of Bernicia after his brother had died. And in fact, that same record tells us that Aidwolf surrendered Lothian to King Malcolm, which does sound like something he'd do if he just had his ass handed to him at Carham. However, a different Durham record claims that Lothian was given to the Scots by King Edgar the Peaceable who was reigning over a half century earlier. And that would indicate that Aedwulf couldn't have granted those lands because he didn't have them in the first place. Unless, of course, they were seized at some previous engagement, perhaps at that 1005 battle. The fact is that the records of the North are so poor for this period, it's impossible to know for sure what is truly happening. But something definitely was. Scotland was in conflict with England, possibly for decades. And one 11th century French monk, Rodolphus Glaber, also called Ralph Glaber, wrote of how Canute fought a long war with the Scots. And based on the details he gives, we can be relatively certain that it took place sometime between 1018 and 1026. And from the records out of Durham and the Chronicle, it does seem like significant losses were being incurred, possibly by both sides. Furthermore, the English loss seems to have taken place either in the last few months of the reign of King Edmund Ironside or in the first year or two of King Canute. And we do know that at some point, Scotland did take possession of Lothian. So Scotland was doing things and it was active and it was a force to be reckoned with. But unfortunately, what we know about this period, at least when it comes to non-archaeological history, comes down to two things. Did someone think it was worth writing down, and did that writing survive in some form to our modern day? If you don't have those two things, you don't have a written record. And it appears that while there were some pretty big events that were going on, they weren't really getting written down. But if you look closely, it's possible that all the events we've been discussing recently in the show were happening against a backdrop of extended war with Scotland. But unfortunately, our scribes are keeping their mouths shut. But if that was what was happening, and Ralph Glaber was correct, that would have added significant pressure on all the figures and events that we've discussed. Furthermore, something similar seems to have been happening in Wales. Looking closely at the records, well, what records there are, we see that the Welsh relationship with England was a bit on again off again. Edric Strayona and King Athelred had been on a war footing with Wales as recently as 1012, and yet Athelred's son, King Edmund Ironside, convinced the Welsh to support him in his fight against King Canute in 1016. But now, in the time of Canute, the Welsh annals are telling us that Eglaf of Mercia, Jarl Ulf's brother, had raised an army and raided Devad in 1022. So England was back to a hostile relationship with Wales, and that's a significant development. And yet, the English record stays silent on it, which might suggest that this conflict, like the conflict in Scotland, might have been more of a threat to the establishment than Canute would have liked to admit. And to top it off, England was also on the precipice of a Scandinavian war. And it was a war that was so significant that it devoured the remainder of the reign of Canute. And to be honest, even the lead up to the war was such a huge issue for Canute that it had a massive impact on almost all of his reign. And this is a fact you can see just by looking at his travel plans. Canute was in Denmark from 1019 to 1020, and again from 1022 to 1023, then from 1025 to 1026, and it seems he went back yet again and was there from 1026 to 1027. And for a king of England... That is a lot of time in Denmark, and he wasn't going for a holiday. The fact is, Canute was engulfed in Scandinavian politics for nearly a decade, and when war finally fully broke out, he could engage in little else. And yet, when this period of history is taught, this era of his reign is usually covered in just a few sentences. It's glanced over as if it's somehow insignificant. And that's kind of like covering the life of Winston Churchill and then just casually mentioning that in his later years, he dealt with a war with Germany before moving on to how he liked to paint and then saying nothing else about that small matter of, you know, World War II. And by glossing over what was happening in Scandinavia, what we're missing is the story of a complete political breakdown that put England on the path to war in a region that was far from its shores. And The real story here is one about how bad things can go when you base international politics on the personal relationships of the rich and powerful. And it all starts with Norway. Do you remember how Swain Forkbeard of Denmark and Olaf Tryggvason of Norway launched a raid on England in the mid-990s? It was that raid that ended with King Athelred paying a tribute to Olaf, and then Olaf promptly returned to Scandinavia. And if you recall, Following that departure, Forkbeard also rushed back to Scandinavia because he found himself at war with Olaf, who had made a play for the throne of Norway. And the throne of Norway at that point was Forkbeard's. And this conflict between Olaf and Forkbeard was so bad that England actually had a bit of a reprieve from the constant invasions because the Scandinavians were just preoccupied. Well, Olaf eventually won, and he seized the throne of Norway. And when he did, he exiled certain nobles who posed a threat to his reign, including our old friend Eric Lathier. Now Olaf ruled Norway for five years, but during that time, the wolves were still circling, and the newly exiled Eric Lathier had powerful allies. He was close to King Swain Forkbeard of Denmark, and also to King Olaf of Sweden, and they were making plans. And in the year 1000, they launched a combined attack against King Olaf of Norway, and they defeated him at the Battle of Svolder. Now, following this victory, Eric Clathier and his brother Swain, no relationship to Forkbeard, were placed in charge of Norway. But of course, they were serving under Swain Forkbeard. So with Danish control reestablished and the internal Scandinavian war handled, the region was able to get back to business. And the raids on England resumed. Numerous campaigns into England were undertaken in the years that followed. We saw armies being led by Forkbeard, by Thorkhelvetal, by Olaf Haraldsson, but it wasn't until Canute began his campaign that Eric Lathier returned to our story. Because in that campaign, he left his post in Norway and he came to England himself. And when he did, his son Hakon became the new co-ruler of Norway. Which meant the sub kingdom would now be governed by his brother Swain and his son Hakon Eriksson. And both of them were serving under Canute, son of Swain Forkbeard. Forkbeard was dead by this point. Now, Eric was a fearsome war leader, as was Canute, but both men were also far from Scandinavia and were tied down with the conquest of England. And apparently, Eric's son Hakon, as well as his brother, didn't have that same aura of invincibility because as soon as eric left a viking warlord began preparations of his own his name was olaf haraldson and as he was a descendant of harald fairhair he had a claim to the throne of norway and in about 1015 he successfully claimed that throne through war in the conflict eric's brother swain was killed and his son hakon was forced into exile and he fled to england where he was granted lands in mercia which, if you remember, really ticked off Edric Streona and set up that particularly ugly internal courtly clusterfuck. But beyond creating a situation where Edric would eventually turn on his liege, Olaf Haraldsson's seizure of Norway was also a huge blow for Knut's dynasty. Because Knut, as well as his brother, King Harald II of Denmark, who was still alive at this point, both relied upon Norse support. Eric Lathier's family were close allies and in-laws of Canute's dynasty, dating all the way back to Forkbeard. And while this new king, Olaf Haraldsson, had made common cause with Forkbeard during one of his campaigns, that wasn't exactly the same thing. And making matters worse, new king Olaf Haraldsson of Norway was ambitious. He was only about 20 years old, but he had the right combination of work ethic and vision that can make for a formidable leader. And he'd begun his rule by deliberately and systematically ousting any threats to his position and consolidating power upon himself and his allies. And that further broke Norway away from Danish control. And while Olaf wasn't as efficient as Canute toward the recent Danish rulers, nor did he occupy himself with large-scale urban projects or minting coins, like the Danes have been doing, he was still very effective. And within a very short period of time, King Olaf Haraldsson had put his kingdom on course to become a dominant force in the region within a couple hundred years. And that was a problem for Canute because with the death of King Harald II of Denmark, his brother, and the fact that Canute was distracted by England, not to mention the political earthquakes that were caused by Thorkell and the internal chaos that followed Thorkell's sudden death and the rise of Jarl Ulf. Well, suddenly... Denmark looked a lot less like a threat to Olaf's power and a lot more like an opportunity. And King Olaf Haraldsson liked opportunities. Then things got a little worse. Olaf married Astrid, the daughter of King Olaf of Sweden. Just about everybody was named Olaf at this point. And when that happened, I can imagine that there were courtiers in Denmark and England trying to work out exactly what it meant and what precisely the political goal of this union was intended to achieve. I mean, the most obvious one, and the one that would have occurred to pretty much everyone, was that King Olaf of Norway wanted an alliance with King Olaf of Sweden. But for what purpose? Well, the fact was that King Olaf of Sweden and Knut's dynasty in Denmark went way back. In fact, King Olaf was the stepson of King Swain Forkbeard. And as I mentioned earlier, they fought together during the conquest of Norway that put Eric Lathier and his brother on the throne. Those two were tight. And actually, based on the accounts of Florence of Worcester and Adam of Bremen, Olaf wasn't just tight with Forkbeard. Because after Forkbeard died, King Olaf remained close with his son, Canute. And those sources claim that the two men had a treaty where, once England was fully subdued, they intended to conquer Norway and presumably bring it back under Danish control. But it seems that King Canute didn't move quickly enough. Because in 1022, King Olaf of Sweden died. And the throne passed to his teenage son, Anund Jacob. And new King Anund of Sweden didn't share his father's close relationship to Canute. And rather than working with Denmark to conquer Norway, he instead began to consolidate his own power in Sweden. And like his brother-in-law, King Olaf of Norway, King Anund of Sweden was ambitious. And given the instability of Denmark, not to mention their pre-existing dynastic relationship, it appears that the two kings realized that by working together, they stood a good chance to significantly advance their positions on the world stage. And that brings us to Denmark. Following the death of his brother, Harold, Canute became the king of England and Denmark. But that description kind of flies in the face of the fact that during the period of Canute's kingship, Denmark had been governed by Thorkell, Jarl Ulf, and Canute's son, Harthacnut. Not to mention whoever was governing in that interim between the death of Harold and the rise of Thorkell. So... What was going on there, and what was it about Denmark that even allowed Thorkel to become such a problem? And why, after Thorkel died, did Canute not rule directly? Well, according to the Annals Reensis, the Danes weren't all that thrilled about the idea of Canute sitting on the throne. The Annals claim that actually Canute was specifically rejected for kingship in Denmark because he'd been in England too long. And that strikes me as quite plausible. Denmark was politically unstable, and it required a strong central figure to keep everyone rowing in the same direction. So the Danish nobility might have feared that if left under the care of an absentee king, the whole kingdom could come apart. And the truth was that Canute was still spending a lot of time in England. Even when we take into account his travel plans and how often he visited Denmark... His time was still split with England, and that would have posed a big risk to political stability, which is probably why Canute had figures who ruled Denmark for him. Now, unfortunately, Canute didn't have any adult male relatives he could turn to. The closest he had was Hartha Canute, and Hartha Canute was still a child, and that is likely why we see influential local leaders ruling Denmark jointly alongside Hartha Canute. And it's no surprise that Canute's powerful brother-in-law, Jarl Ulf, soon took up the role as co-ruler alongside the young heir. In practice, Hartha Canute likely served as a figurehead, representing Canute's dynasty. But it was Jarl Ulf who ruled as regent. And by doing this, we can guess that Canute was hoping that his problems with Denmark would subside. The Danes would be ruled, not by someone far away in England, but by one of their own, locally. And yet, at the same time, Canute would still have his hand on the wheel because his son would be there to represent the dynasty and, I assume, the idea was that his son and his brother-in-law would carry out any edicts that were sent from Canute's court in England. He probably also assumed that his influence over the affairs in Denmark would be unchallenged because his power in Europe was rising significantly. Unfortunately, Canute was wrong. The expansion of his power meant that he'd acquired a great deal of new enemies. Because the fact was that not everyone was excited about Canute's seizure of multiple thrones. And in particular, Norway and Sweden, who had ambitions of their own, were starting to see Canute as an existential threat. Amplifying his problems was the fact that he was deliberately merging his kingdoms into an empire. Canute wasn't just ruling over both kingdoms he was also installing English allies and appointees in Danish positions of influence, just like he was installing Danish allies and appointees to English positions of influence. And the fact was that the local nobles, both in Denmark and England, weren't exactly thrilled about the sudden competition. And then add to that the reality that the English throne meant that Canute needed to spend a significant amount of time back in England especially since it appears that he might've been fighting a war with Scotland and possibly also Wales, and then add to that the state of the Danish throne and how his absence from Denmark left him vulnerable, well, you start to see how this is all shaking out, don't you? Canute had never been more powerful than he was at this moment. And yet, this same success meant that he'd expanded his responsibilities and he'd also multiplied his enemies. He was overstretched and there was blood in the water. And then suddenly, in 1024, Elderman Eglaf of Mercia, the brother of Jarl Ulf, who was the co-ruler of Denmark, vanishes from the English witness lists. And he reappeared alongside his brother, Jarl Ulf, in Denmark, at the head of an army of Danes, and supported by an army of Swedes. And it turned out, they had some ideas about who should rule Denmark. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British Podcast at gmail.com. Stay safe, wash your hands, and don't let the panic overwhelm you. Nothing good comes from panic. Take a deep breath, and I am hard at work on the next episode, so you're going to have something to listen to soon. Thanks for listening.